some are saying, well, we want to go back to the country the way it was. And Susan B. Anthony gives a powerful speech. She does not want to go back. She does not want that union. And she actually describes, and she says, from the moment that the first person was put in shackles in Africa and brought to this country, we've been at war. And this is the time to end that war. And she says, I do not want a union that is a sham. I want a union that is truly a union. This week on the Janice Adams Show, race and gender entwined, getting up in agitation, the life and legacy of Susan B. Anthony, temperance, anti-slavery, women's rights, human rights. On matters such as these, as my grandmother would say, in this world, all things are one. Trying to make it real compared to what? First, the news. Trying to make it real compared to what? Today on the Janice Adams Show, we honor the life and legacy of one of the world's best-known feminist leaders, a woman who put her life on the line to uphold the rights of every individual to God-given freedoms. We're on the road following the path through history to Rochester, New York, home of Susan B. Anthony. Hers was a time in America, a forebear of our own, when women were told to be silent in public, to mind their households, and keep to their sphere. I saw a man in tattered garb forth from the grog shop come. He squandered all his cash for drink and starved his wife at home. I asked him should not woman vote. He answered with a sneer. I've taught my wife to know her place, keep woman in her sphere. My name is Linda Lapata. Hello. Um, I am the Director of Interpretive and Guest Services at the National Susan B. Anthony Museum and House, and I oversee the educational programming um, as well as um, any interpretation uh, that happens through uh, the docents. I'm Victoria Brostowitz, and I am celebrating two weeks here at the National Susan B. Anthony Museum and House as Director of Communications. I'm Deborah L. Hughes. I'm the president and CEO of the National Susan B. Anthony Museum and House. Uh, I'm just now celebrating 10 years being here at the museum. And so uh, my job is to share Susan B. Anthony's story through this amazing place. We're here at the Susan B. Anthony home. And just tell us why we're here. What's the significance of this place? This is the house that Susan B. Anthony moved into with her mother and sister in 18. 18- Uh, 66, so shortly after the Civil War. And for the next 40 years, this was her home base. Even though she traveled around the country and internationally teaching and and agitating for freedom, uh, this was what she considered the the place that was home. And it's also the place where she was arrested for voting in 1872. It's the place where she breathed her last breath in 1906. And it's a place where they wrote The History of Women's Suffrage, several volumes, and where her biography was written by Ida Houston Harper with Susan B. Anthony standing over Ida Houston Harper's shoulder saying the things she wanted to have included. So this is a place where a great reformer found her grounding and her connection. Uh, it's the way she connected with the energy of her family, 
and the world, but it's also a place where she lived out in this neighborhood, her experience of being the person she thought we should all be in the community and in the world. What are her dates exactly? She was born in 1820, so slavery was still illegal uh, in New York State and in the country at that point. And she died in 1906. So she spanned some of the greatest changes in our society, from being an agricultural society to being an industrial society, from a time when a woman was considered the property of her father or her husband to a time when women were beginning to uh, get education and um, participate in many of the professions. On this tour, we have been focusing on the Underground Railroad and also making note of the connection um, between the Underground Railroad, the the freedom fight of African Americans, and the freedom fight of women, and also looking at, at other groups, Native Americans. We've been asking questions, LGBT issues. We've been asking questions about this conversation about freedom that we're having with this series of shows. I notice when you say she's born 1820, then she is a direct contemporary of um, Harriet Tubman, uh, with Harriet Tubman surviving her by a few years. But they're both born, well, I guess we absolutely know Susan B. Anthony was born in 1820, and we know that Harriet Tubman was born sometime in 1820. What was the relationship between the two? Susan B. Anthony and Harriet Tubman knew each other. Uh, They often crossed paths at different points in time. Harriet Tubman, as you know, ended the latter years of her life here in central New York in the Finger Lakes area. And we have a letter from Susan B. Anthony when she was living out on the farm, not at this house, but about a mile to the west of where we are now. Her next-door neighbor was a woman named Rhoda DeGarmo, and the DeGarmos were a well-documented Underground Railroad site. And in one of her letters, Susan B. Anthony writes, fitted out a friend of Harriet Tubman's today. So we assume that at that point, uh, Susan was helping someone along the way, along the journey. Uh, Most people are not aware that Susan B. Anthony had a tremendous passion for the abolition of slavery, and it was what she was putting her heart and soul into in the 1850s. She was very passionate about that. What is her epiphany? in terms of being a woman of that time, 1820, and moving forward, you know, antebellum period into the Civil War period and all of that. What is the epiphany for her? Susan Bethany was a Quaker, and Quakers had that belief that every person, man or woman, had the light of the universe inside of them and had a vocation, something that they should fulfill. And for that reason, we see a lot of Quaker women in the 19th century who are given more opportunities. They actually thought it was better for a Quaker woman to stay single than to marry outside of meeting. And so Quakers had an obligation to provide women who might stay single with a a way to make a living. And so Susan B. Anthony and many other uh, Quaker women were trained to be educators. The only job that you could hold as a woman then was to be a teacher. And her teaching experience really opened her eyes on a lot of levels. At that point, you could only teach if you were single. If you got married, you had to give up the job. Part of the job would be that you would go and live often with a trustee or someone else who was responsible for the school. So not only would you teach the children, but you would be housekeeper and nurse and uh, support system for that person for the, the pleasure of having your position. And at that time, Susan B. Anthony would have been one of the first to remind us that a woman was making about a quarter for every dollar that a man made despite her success or how well she was doing her job of teaching. 
factually, I'm trying to remember the detail. Was she at the 1840 convention in England? She was not at the 1848 convention. At, at that point, she had been engaged in temperance. She felt that was an issue of social justice, that a, alcohol addiction was such a huge problem in the 19th century, and it was a problem for women and children. Because if you were married to someone who was a drunk, you couldn't get divorced, you couldn't leave, you couldn't open a bank account, and the children that you had born were his. And so it was a social justice issue to address that social problem. Mm-hmm. And then she became completely dedicated to the abolition of slavery. And when her, uh, when they were having the convention in uh, Seneca Falls, Susan B. Anthony was not there. And actually they convened that convention again here in Rochester. And her mother and father and sister went. And Susan was out at the farm. And uh, we have a letter from her again in the 1850s where she's writing to a cousin saying, should, what should I do? Should I put on pantaloons and take up the women's rights movement? She got radicalized, actually, in the temperance movement because she went to a convention, and the daughters of temperance would meet with the sons of temperance, but they had separate uh, units. And she rose because she wanted to make a statement about social reform, and the gentleman who was presiding said the women were there to listen and learn, but not to be heard from. And that was an epiphany for her. That was the moment that she decided if she wanted to have any role in social reform, she had to be able to have the power of a voice and a vote. And so for her, the the vote was not the end all. It was the means to be able to participate in society and change society for the better. So from that unfortunate man who made the mistake of crossing swords with Susan B. Anthony at that moment, what was the next thing she did after that? Very shortly after that, she had defined the, the three important words, organize, educate, and agitate. And that's what she believed had to happen first, that you you had to get people together, you had to connect them, you had to educate them about what the issues were, and then you had to agitate them. Because a lot of great thinkers would understand there was a problem, but they wouldn't do anything about it. And so that strategy was her strategy for all of her social reforms. And she and Frederick Douglass often would write to each other and talk about getting up in agitation. And that was really to take the social justice to the level where not only did you hear about the wrong that was happening, but you were so appalled by what you were hearing that you got engaged in making it change. By social reformers, yeah, that term, get up in agitation. Uh, and it really was get that, up and get up in agitation. Yes, there's a, we're going to have a play that will um, premiere here in Rochester in October. It's a new play written by Matt Smart. And it's about the relationship between Susan B. Anthony and Frederick Douglass. And it's called The Agitators. What year are we talking about when she makes this transition? She's retiring from teaching before she's in her 30s. Uh, But when you think about Susan B. Anthony as a model for what we can do with our lives, she got arrested when she was 52, which was a ripe old age in the 19th century. Mm. And she gave her most famous speech of all, her failure is impossible speech, when she was 86 years old. She is part of the temperance movement. And then she... Does she ever marry? She never marries. Okay. Uh, So that's consistent with what you were telling us about uh, her Quaker tradition in terms of what a woman could be and that sometimes you mentioned it was better not to marry than to, I guess, have a bad marriage. Um, One of the things we've been looking at as we do this series, and we've been taping now for two days, um, is to understand it in the context of its time. So as she's dealing with 
other people and other thinkers in her time, and also in the context of ours, why we are still talking about this woman and need to talk about this woman and how it relates to the things that we're going through. So here she is. Um, she doesn't go so she's not at the London meeting either that everybody talks about as being so pivotal. She's not at the 1848 meeting. And yet, at some point, she steps into herself. Actually, the, the, when she meets Elizabeth Cady Stanton, which was a, a, a whole relationship that would last the next 50 years, she's, it's an anti-slavery society meeting that they connect. And when is that? Uh, that's in 1852. Okay. Uh, and so they meet, and what do they decide to do? What do they talk about? That's interesting. There's a great quote. Elizabeth Cady Stanton meets her and talks about she has this amazing smile and dynamism. And, of course, most of the photos, all of the photos and pictures of Susan B. Anthony, she's looking rather stern. And yet here are the reporters who, throughout her lifetime, whether they like her or not, talk about her charisma, her dynamism, and her, her, her winning smile and her sense of humor. So they, they paint a different picture than what we see in the images. Susan B. Anthony was uh, totally believing in social reform. That was her passion. She met Frederick Douglass through her father. And on Sunday afternoons at the family farm out next to the DeGarmos, you would find Frederick Douglass and the family, William Lloyd Garrison. John Brown was a good friend of the families. In fact, two of Susan B. Anthony's brothers rode with John Brown in Kansas uh, when they were trying to push for Kansas to be a, a free state. And so uh, much, her, her whole family fabric was about trying to create a society that was better than what we had. One of the speeches that I find most connects us today is a speech that she gave when there was a meeting of the Women's Loyalty League. It was during the time of the Civil War, and they had called a national convention of women and to, to talk about how they were going to address this moment in time. And for Susan B. Anthony... She felt that it was the moment to, to put an end to slavery. And for some of the other women gathered, it was about something else. It might have been about state rights. It might have been about uh, other, other issues. And for her, that, that was not what this clarion call was all about. And some are saying, well, we want to go back to the country the way it was. And Susan B. Anthony gives a powerful speech where she says she, she does not want to go back. She does not want that union and she actually describes, and she says, from the moment that the first person was put in shackles in Africa and brought to this country, we've been at war. And this is the time to end that war. And she says, I do not want a union that is a sham. I want a union that is truly a union. Thank you, Susan B. Anthony. When we come back, more of our visit to the Susan B. Anthony home on The Janice Adams Show. We're back here on The Janice Adams Show with our celebration of the life and legacy of Susan B. Anthony, one among the world's greatest human rights champions. From her home in Rochester, New York, Anthony was only miles from Seneca Falls, site of the first Women's Rights Convention, July 19th to 20th, 1848. Yet, I was surprised to learn, as you'll hear, Anthony, who would soon become the voice of the women's rights movement, didn't attend the convention. And riding waves of urgency and momentum, a second women's rights convention was actually convened just weeks later. Here's Linda Lapata, Director of Interpretation and Visitor Services for the Susan B. Anthony Home and Museum. August 2nd, 1848. 
It's virtually the same convention, only slightly different. Um, at this convention, a woman actually presides. And I love that because at the first convention, I believe it was Frederick Douglass that convinced Elizabeth Cady Stanton, yes, indeed, you can stand up there and speak. And Elizabeth Cady Stanton does and finds her voice pretty quickly. And then at the Rochester convention, it's proposed that a woman presides, and it's Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Lucretia Mott that actually have to be convinced by a local Quaker woman, Amy Post, um, who we know harbored fugitives in great numbers, that said, I think we can do this too. Um, so you see in a very short period of time, if you have the opportunity to do something, you can succeed at it. Um, and that's what I love about the story of Rochester. And also that um, that convention takes on a slightly different flavor. Um, they really address more of working class women's issues. Uh, you're probably not caring so much about the vote when you are trying to get food on the table for your children. And so out of that convention actually comes a promise to help support a seamstress union. The convention that takes pl place here you say that it takes on a, on a different tone or a different, different purpose. Does C Susan B. Anthony attend that convention? I'm afraid not. <laughs> she is not at that convention. But um, as Deborah pointed out, her, her father, Daniel, sister, Mary, and her mother as well. And they signed the Declaration of Sentiments at, at that meeting. So who is this woman who is now almost iconic with women's rights, but not part of those early efforts right literally in her backyard. Who is she? Well, that's a tough question. She's a lot of people like all of us that grows and gains confidence. Um, that's one of the things that I point out to the children when we do programs. Uh, how do you think that she felt when, as probably around age 10 or 12, the, the teacher refused to teach the girls higher math, which was, of course, Susan's favorite subject? Um, and, and how do you think that she felt when she went to the Quaker school and the headmistress was on her about everything and this precocious child that was not mischievous um, but felt like she couldn't do anything wrong um, and so you see her gain confidence as the years go on and actually you see that in the changing relationship with Elizabeth Cady Stanton as well um, which would you agree that Elizabeth Cady Stanton was more identified with the women's rights movement early on um, and then it became more Susan B. Anthony. Yeah there's a um I'm, I'll paraphrase, but a reporter later in her life said, it was, you've always been about the women's rights, and she says, in essence, no, I'm, I'm about the rights of all human beings. But if you can change the world for half the population, why not start there? And that is Susan B. Anthony speaking? That's Susan B. Anthony. Okay. You mentioned the changing relationship between Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Staten. From what to what? I'm going to let you handle that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, they have different social contexts. Um, Stanton is married. She has a lot of children. She uh, has a father who's a lawyer, so she comes from a certain position of privilege. She, though, is dedicated. She chooses to marry her husband, Henry, despite her father's complete protest. 
Henry is another reformer, and they say he's never going to make any money or do anything with his life. Uh, she at one point breaks off the engagement for that, and then in the end uh, marries him again and goes off to Europe to have a honeymoon. Uh, my personal opinion of, of Stanton, and I haven't studied that much about Stanton, but later in the 19th century, Stanton is still very concerned with uh, institutional isms. She's very concerned about patriarchy, particularly in the church. And when she gets to the point where she's publishing her woman's Bible, uh, it, it makes you blush today, her critique of patriarchy in the church, because some of it is so familiar uh, in terms of the power. For Susan B. Anthony, her in her Quaker grounding, I don't think she ever gave the church that much authority. Uh, and Quakers don't. You know, the, the Quaker motto was that no authority but truth. Uh, and so Susan wasn't as interested in a, attacking a particular institution that didn't have authority for her. There is a point when Stanton's writing the Women's Bible, and they actually don't want to recognize her at a women's convention. And Susan B. Anthony stands up for her longtime friend and says, we're not, we're not going to start doing that. We're gonna, not going to start throwing women out who have opinions that we agree with or disagree with. Let's, let's not let it come to that. Uh, I think Stanton is brilliant. She writes many of the arguments. Some people say she wrote the speeches for Susan B. Anthony. I don't think that's actually true. Uh, Anthony really spoke extemporaneously for years. But the arguments... She drew on Stanton's ability to find 10 different ways to take apart an argument and to put it into the debate. And she would, Susan B. Anthony would integrate that into her. And she was always relying on Stanton to, to create the next, the next argument, the That's next speech. That's the legal mind. The legal That's mind. the legal mind. Exactly. And sometimes it gets them into trouble. Because sometimes, like a debater, they'll take on an issue from an angle that we now regret. Um, in, in particular, some of, some of the arguments um, feed racism today. And so uh, it, it's like one of those things where you might argue that the biggest was the question about should the, uh, following the, the uh, Civil War, should we pass the 15th Amendment uh, and grant black men who had been enslaved the right to vote, or should we push for universal suffrage? And Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton had been for universal suffrage, and now there was an opportunity for black men to get the right to vote, and Frederick Douglass and William Lloyd Garrison and others felt that opportunity must be seized, and Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton saw it as a betrayal because the argument had always been that a woman couldn't get the right to vote because she had no experience, she had no education, she'd never owned property, she didn't know what it was to be a citizen. And so Stanton turned the argument around in ways I wish she hadn't to say, wait, now you're saying a man who's never owned property, who's never been able to have the right to have an education, who's never participated in citizenship because of the barriers that slavery allowed can now somehow be qualified to vote, but a woman still can't be qualified to vote. And so we were dealing with that reality of how really people in power played off two groups that were denied human rights against each other. It was the obvious divide and conquer. It was. And we see it getting played out today as well. Yeah, yeah, we do. Um, in fact, I, I think notably I experienced it um, in the wake of the 2008 election and whether or not we were supposed to put our support to um, Hillary Clinton in that election or to Barack Obama and the, that argument uh, came up again and um, it was something that a lot of African American women 
were were being put through um, with a, a question that I've been asked all my life, and it's a, a question I hate. Well, are you a woman or are you a black person? You know, and it's so ridiculous. So, um, and that's supposed to define which side you're on, and but it just what it really does is define whose service we are all in because the very question puts you in the service of someone who doesn't want either group to have what is essentially due human rights. Well, I think it's interesting right now as we, uh, when we will post something from Susan B. Anthony's words that really challenge what's going on today, almost immediately we'll get people who will respond to try to do that same divide and conquer. Uh, whether that's on social media or wherever, they want to silence her voice. What are what are some of the kinds of responses? If if you can think of one or two specific ones, so we understand. Sure. Uh, here in Rochester at the election in November, uh, we had people who came. Ten thousand people came to her grave, and it was delightful to have the BBC call us and say what's going on there in Rochester. Uh, a local reporter filmed fourteen hours on Facebook, and had twenty three million people see it. And the response from some people was, well, Susan B. Anthony was a racist. And it was a quote from her, although usually they leave one word out. And it was from that time period following the Civil War when Susan B. Anthony said, when William Lloyd Garrison and Tilton came to her and said, the war's over, now we want to get the right to vote for black men, we think we can achieve this, and we want you to write petitions. And she said, before the war it was that we were all about universal suffrage. And now we're not going to be a unified front anymore. And the, the paraphrased line was that she said, I would, I would sooner cut off my right arm than give the vote to a black man before a woman. Often black man is left out. Um, and the context of that is I would sooner cut off my right arm than give the vote to any group rather than every person. Um, another quote from her that, that doesn't get lifted up is uh, when the response is, well, this is the Negro's hour, and Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton both said, do you think that there are no Negro women? And so it's a, it's a misunderstanding, um, but it's an easy one to misunderstand if it's taken out of context. Misunderstandings or manipulations? Well, it's interesting because the... Um, both Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton retracted those statements within six months and, and said that the argument was misunderstood and that that wasn't what they meant. Mm-hmm. Um, but we keep going back to that. So here's something that they are saying in the 1860s that from uh, then to the rest of their life, they said was not what they meant and they regretted it, but we pull it out. That's why I use the term manipulation. In this issue of the racial divide and the divide and conquer, there was an unfortunate statement made about whether or not one would prefer to give uh, the vote to a black man or stature to a black man versus a white woman. And they used uh, Sambo for the black man and... Dinah, Irish immigrant. Okay, so that was the conflict. Not only is it the racial divide, but the economics. So pitting the two economic working class groups against each other. The quote was from Stanton. And I think we do see in Stanton 
raising the question of can you trust democracy to people who are not educated and don't understand democracy and what it's about. Susan B. Anthony more consistently said that's a risk you have to take. You can't deny a citizen's right to participate on the basis of anything. Um, Stanton, however, would, in her, her lawyer mind, would debate. You know, what does it mean to, in this case, if you, uh, following the Civil War, empower two million black men who have now come out of slavery, that's two million more men you have to convince that a woman is actually a human being. Um, and what do, you, what, what do you do with education? Um, that, that, that's the context. Uh, and I do hear that more in Stanton. I hear her really saying, who do we empower to vote? You don't hear that, or at least I don't hear that in Anthony. Similarly around religion. There's one later on, they're having a whole discussion with Matilda Jaws and Gage, and Gage is terrified that the United States is going to become a theocracy, and they actually had even proposed on the Senate floor that Jesus would be the God in whom we trust and that the United States would adopt Jesus as God. And Gage is terrified that that's the direction we're headed, that we're going to become a fundamentalist Christian state, and she needs Anthony to be her voice because Anthony really did have the, the public voice at that point. And Anthony basically says, we don't even have to worry about that. We, we, we need to give everyone the vote. There will be atheists and Baptists and Presbyterians and, and Mohammedans, which was the common phrase for Muslims, mm-hmm. and everyone, and Mormons, and everyone, and, yes, and everyone will be on the platform, and then we'll sort it out. And I think, again, it's partly because she just didn't invest that much power in religion. Uh, she was not an optimist who didn't understand politics. She had been in the fray for a long, long time, and she understood the machinations of politics and the disappointment of politics. But when Gage felt, don't bring in these women's Christian temperance union uh, just to advance the cause of women getting the right to vote, and Anthony said, there's room for everybody, dear. (laughs) That's Susan B. Anthony. This issue of the vote, so this is post-Civil War, and black men are the ones who won the coin toss. Um, But it really isn't that, because it's too serious for that. It is black men won the right to vote, but black women did not, and white women did not, and other women of color did not. So at that point, what does she decide to do that leads her to where she will cast a vote, and is she actually able to cast that vote, or does she just symbolically try to cast that vote? Well, they had two strategies. One was to try to bring in all the new states, because the country was growing, uh, and the first five states to grant women suffrage were all west of the Continental Divide, um, and out there, and the reality was women and men had more equal roles, because it was on the frontier, and you know, take Wyoming, five men for every woman. A woman can leave any man who's not treating her well, and there are other opportunities, mm-hmm. and there was a reality there. Uh, and um, so one of the strategies was any new state. It was similar to the strategy before the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 and the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Any new state had to be, or they would do one free and one slave holding. No, they, they wanted to bring in every new state as a state where women could vote. But Susan B. Anthony also recognized that in the South, they would never get those states to allow women to vote because in most of the former states, the states where there had been slaves, Confederate states, the former. In, the, in the Confederate states, um, if you were to allow black men and black women to vote, then the formerly oppressed would outvote the oppressors. 
And the reality was that wasn't going to happen. And so she... That's, that's why. It was, a, it was a divide and conquer to begin with, because right. automatically... Automatically, you would have turned the world upside down. Yeah. And, and she would have been in support of turning that world upside down. Uh, that's really what she wanted. Let's give everyone the right to vote. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the... But there are two different issues here, and, and these are also very relevant issues for us. Susan B. Anthony really believed that this country had to be about every person. And to that extent, we had to be a union. And we had to have rights that would apply across state borders. And we couldn't tolerate some states to do... And and that had to do with her belief around equality uh, and opportunity in in political life as well as in economic life and in education and in all things. At what point, since you're saying this was her belief, at what point does she come to this belief? I mean, because we are talking about, you you mentioned um, from the beginning that her life transits some of the greatest social change in the United States. So at what point are you talking about this belief that she has? Very early on, She's making those statements uh, when they, when she and Elizabeth Cady Stanton name their magazine the Revolution. It's not about social change. It's about pointing back to that moment of independence, where she and her sister and her mother and her father felt that the revolution was never completed, because the vision for democracy, it, we were not we the people. And she says that she says that very early on. It's it's not it's not we the the white men. It's not we the white male citizens. It's we the people, all the people. And and that is her vision for what this country could become if we really empowered every citizen. And of course, we're still struggling with that. I mean, the very fact that right now there are states that are trying to constrict voting rights all over again as as though we haven't been through the last 100 years is really quite astounding. Susan B. Anthony is more relevant today than she was six months ago. And that's the, that's the amazing thing. When we think about the uh, amendments that were passed after the, the Civil War, neither Susan B. Anthony nor Frederick Douglass felt that they got the 14th or 15th Amendment that they wanted. It actually set us up to go backward because the way that the 15th Amendment said um, no person um, on the, can be denied the right to vote on the basis of prior servitude left open a huge door for reasons why people could be denied the right to vote. And the 19th Amendment, even though it says no woman can be denied the right to vote on the basis of her sex, it leaves it wide open. Because we know until the Voting Rights Act of 1965, there are all kinds of ways that women continue to be denied the vote, and still today. What we're seeing in that is that really, despite all the terms and all the, the... the statements about freedom, 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 what we're seeing is that the United States has a tradition of protecting injustice. Every time you have something that would seem to be moving people forward, you've just said it, in the uh, 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments is the caveat that you can't discriminate on former condition of servitude, but that means that you can discriminate on other bases. When women finally get the vote, it's at the height of segregation. So you cannot be denied on the basis of gender. But you can be, you know, if we choose to, you can be on account of race. And then, you know, we have these others, the Brown versus Board of Ed. We're fighting 
issues of um, education, you know, amazingly. And when you really read Brown versus Board of Ed, you realize that those same caveats were built into that as well, which is why you have the conversation about vouchers, which is why you have a system that is being put forth to only educate some or few on the budget that would have been applied to the many. Now, if you're willing to to deal with the many, you can deal with what you want to do with the budget. But the whole the whole trick of the of the conversation is about once again preserving inequity and inequality and preserving status quo on some level preserving the right to intimidate some for the benefit of others so what would susan b anthony say about that and direct us to do about that right now So we always have to answer that we don't know what Susan B. Anthony would say, but we can actually look at her words. Then I will reframe the question because of, yes, I, I agree with you. We don't want to say she would say this, but faced with the circumstances that she was faced with that so parallel ours, what are the things that she had said in her lifetime that apply to ours on a real lateral basis, not a pie-in-the-sky basis. If you go to the Anthony family plot here in Rochester, there is a stone in the center. It's a, a big pillar. And around the pillar are the four values that I think are the essence of Susan B. Anthony and her family. And they are liberty, equality, justice, and humanity. Susan B. Anthony is agitating me all the time about the ways we're still not living into that possibility. And she did believe in liberty, liberty to the point that people could make decisions that you wouldn't agree with. She believed in justice across the way, and she felt that society had a role to play to assure that people got it, particularly the people who didn't have the ability to fight for it for themselves. Equality across the board for every human being. She wouldn't draw lines about that. She often got into trouble because she stood up for people whose society had neglected or rejected and and crossed some lines that got her into a lot of trouble sometimes. Um, But I also think the piece is humanity. I don't think we understand Susan B. Anthony's power until we understand that everything that she was doing was for the good of all. So not not liberty for the sake of the individual, not equality for the sake of the individual, but everything that we do for the hope that we could actually live into a a vision for humanity that's grander than we've ever achieved. And to me, she's going to keep agitating us from the grave until we get there. Coming up, we'll tour the Susan B. Anthony home more after the break. Trying to make it real compared to what... We're back here on the Janice Adams Show. We're visiting the Susan B. Anthony Museum and Home in Rochester, New York, a home that would come to represent the women's movement. I've been down to Madison to see the folks and sights. You'd laugh, I'm sure, to hear them talk about the women's rights. Now it's just as plain as my old hat, as plain as plain can be, that if the women want the vote, they'll get no help from me. 
this is an extraordinary opportunity that we have. We are now entering the Susan B. Anthony home. In touring the house, we've been here in her library, and I see this handbag that you have here. What's the story of the handbag? There's a, a quote from Susan B. Anthony from early on. She says, every woman needs a purse of her own. And she's actually speaking about the fact that a married woman couldn't have a bank account. So this is not a fashion statement. This is a statement about women's independence. And so uh, the alligator purse has become a metaphor for many things. It actually was what they call a club bag. When you look at it, it looks kind of like a doctor's satchel. And she didn't carry makeup or anything in it, cosmetics. Uh, she carried her speeches. She carried transcripts of her trial. So it was, and, and it was known to go and go underneath the, the uh, seat with her on the train. And it, it became this. This was Susan B. Anthony, the red shawl. At one point, she showed up at one train station, and the press were there to meet her, and she was wearing a gray shawl. And they asked her to go change because they couldn't write the article about Susan B. Anthony without her red shawl. Whose bedroom are we in now? This room had a number of different functions. It actually first was Susan B. Anthony's mother's room, Lucy, who really bought the house first, and then Mary later bought it from her mother, providing an annuity for, Mer for Lucy to have her retirement. The room went through a lot of transitions. Actually, we sit here, you see a wall in front of us. There used to be a door that came through this wall, and the window that you see there would have lit the stairs that we came up. But by the 1890s, the house was full of women doing the work, and this was the headquarters of the National American Woman Suffrage Association, and they didn't have enough room, so they raised the roof, and they added the third floor. And at that point, the stairs that go up to the third floor went where the hallway used to be, and the doorway moved over here to this corner. And then this room, at some times, Mary was supporting her sister, who's doing the movement, and she had borders. At sometimes the borders would take up the whole first floor, and then this would be the front parlor for the, the family and the people who were living here. At other times, it was a guest room, and that's we call it a guest chamber now. So we have our Madison Mavens. We know that all of the women that are on the wall stayed here overnight more than once, uh, but we don't know if they stayed in this room. Uh, we have a reproduction of a quilt that Susan B. Anthony and her sister made as a wedding gift for another sister. And so this space over the 46, 40 years, excuse me, from 1866 to 1906, had lots of functions. I want to ask you about that coat. It, it's just gorgeous. It's the kind of coat that even though we're saying Susan B. Anthony would not have necessarily been concerned with a fashion statement, that coat was and is a fashion statement. Tell us about it. There's interesting things about Susan B. Anthony in fashion. There's a, a, a woman, Kate Gleason, who was the first woman inducted into the American Society of Engineers. And Susan B. Anthony was a mentor to Kate and at one point suggested that Kate change how she dressed because Kate was pretty drab in the, the lab. And Kate became so well-known for her dressing that as she went to Europe as a single woman to sell the machines that were being produced at Gleason Works, often the way the door was open to her was that people were fascinated to see this woman and her dress, never knowing that they would encounter a brilliant engineer who could tell them more about the machinery they were about to buy than they knew themselves. But this cloak is this beautiful velvet cloak with the amazing... Um, uh, embroidery and trim to it and you see we have a picture of Susan B. Anthony wearing that cloak um, that's a pretty well-known photograph it probably was a gift to her most of her nicer things were gifts that other people gave to her uh, that was true in the house too many of the nicer things were things people would send to the house for a, 
an anniversary. We don't usually have this cloak on exhibit. We're doing it this year in New York's centennial year so that people can get another sense of, of her. The interesting thing about this cloak is that when Susan B. Anthony died, the cloak was willed to uh, a woman named Harriet Taylor Upton, who was the treasurer for the National American Women's Suffrage Association, a woman who, as a young woman, didn't think she wanted to go hear that radical Susan B. Anthony and all of her crazy ideas, but her father told her to go and listen. She then becomes treasurer. She has the offices in Warren, Ohio. She took the cloak home. So she had this cloak from 1906 until 1945. And when we were establishing the memorial, which was our first name, the Susan B. Anthony Memorial, she said the cloak should come back to the house. She actually died, uh, and it was willed back to the collection here at the house. And so it it represents also a connection. Uh, Here we had Harriet Taylor Upton, who is the bridge from those pioneers who never lived long enough to see suffrage to someone who lived into the new age and the new era. You mentioned that most of the her nicer clothes were given to her by someone else. What about the fabric in that gorgeous dress in her bedroom? Well, the fabric came from the Mormon women who were making silk from scratch, from mulberry trees that they imported to the silkworms that they brought in. They actually wove the silk, dyed the silk, and created some of the finest silk ever produced in this country is the Mormon silk from the 19th century. And these women gave a gift of five yards of this gorgeous fabric to Susan B. Anthony for her 80th birthday to thank her for helping the women of Utah to get the right to vote as the second territory that awarded women that right. We call these our Madison Mavens. There were so many women who came to visit in the house, and we just picked some. Um, And uh, Ida Houston Harper actually lived here while she was writing the biography with Susan B. Anthony's uh, consultation up on the third floor. Mm -hmm. And uh, Anna Howard Shaw visited regularly, and she's one of those who inherited the house, traveled with Susan B. Anthony, and followed her as president. Uh, Ida B. Wells Barnett came first to Rochester speaking about lynching, And Susan B. Anthony heard her at Corinthian Hall and said, you must come stay at my home. And so it was then Ida B. Wells' practice to stay here. Uh, There's two stories that come from Ida B. Wells' biography, autobiography, that are are, are interesting about this space. Uh, The first was at one point, um, here's Ida B. Wells in one of the bedrooms, and there are stenographers. Susan B. Anthony was keeping three full-time stenographers busy writing correspondence. And she's going out for the day, and so she says, it, could you use one of the stenographers if I have them? And, and Ida B. Wells says, oh, that would be great. Susan goes out, does something. She comes back, and here's Ida B. Wells Barnett writing. And she says, didn't the, the woman do the work for you that I'd asked? And, and Ida B. Wells said, no, she never came. And the, the, the woman was boarding here in the house. And Susan B. Anthony goes down the hall. And, and I'm, again, I'm going to paraphrase but, and use the words of the time. She says to the woman, didn't you do the work that I asked you to do for Miss Barnett? And the young woman says, you might serve an egress, but I won't. And Susan B. Anthony says, all are equal in my home. Get your bonnet and go. And she sends the woman out um, of the house. And uh, another story is years later, Barnett comes back. She's actually coming for the installation of a statue in honor of Frederick Douglass. And she's staying here again with Susan B. Anthony. And now she's married. And Susan B. Anthony, she notes that it seems like Susan B. Anthony can't say her married name. So I'm imagining, I did be Wells... Barnett. And she says, I, I had to ask her, do you have a problem with marriage? 
And Susan B. Anthony says, no, I have no problem with marriage. It's a wonderful institution when it's of love between two equals. But then she goes on to talk to Ida B. Wells Barnett about what she perceives to be Wells's gift and vocation to tell the story. And she sees that since Barnett has gotten married, she's not on the speaking circuit, she's not writing as much, and she's not continuing her work of exposing racism in the country. And so she says it, 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 it's gotten in the way. And she, but Susan B. Anthony actually did understand and sometimes felt you couldn't do two things. Um, it's one of the reasons she, she, at some points, gives for not getting married, that she had this other calling and this other work. Um, and she felt she wanted to be dedicated to it. But, but um, And the interesting thing is that Barnett reflects that she then went back and kind of renegotiated her understanding with her husband, and she gets back out doing her vocation and journalism. And for context, a sense of what things were really like for women at the time, here's Deborah Hughes again, CEO of the Museum and House. Charlotte Perkins Gilman. She um, did some things like gave up custody of her daughter to her husband. Um, the yellow wallpaper is about a woman whose husband has determined that she's insane, and he puts her into a space where she goes quite un. Uh, unsettled as she's isolated from community. And the reason that he isolates her is because she's not conforming to gender expectations of the time. And the voice of Susan B. Anthony in her final days. She's gone to Baltimore and she stands up. She's got fluid in her lungs. She knows she's 86. There's no antibiotics. Mm -hmm. And she names many of the women who've gone before her. She's one of the few still left of the early pioneers. And she says, there's so many that I could name. But with the cause in the hands of those such as these, and she points to those who are inheriting the work, failure is impossible. Mm -hmm. She was so sick that she all but collapsed. They put her on a train. They brought her home to Rochester. They had her downstairs. She couldn't even get her upstairs for three days. She has female nurses who have gotten their registration mm -hmm. and training one of whom says, I don't know anything about this suffragist cause that you're so involved with. And she says, just taking care of the bedside is all that required. Her physician is a woman, Dr. Marcina Riker, and the world is waiting to hear about Susan B. Anthony. And for several weeks, she's up and down, sick and, and better, she gets delirious. And finally, shortly after midnight on March 13th, 1906, the word comes that Susan B. Anthony has died. And at that point, Rochester has a horrific blizzard and at the church that was Central Presbyterian, now it's Hochstein School of Music here, mm -hmm. same church where Frederick Douglass had, had his memorial service, 10,000 people stand in the snow and the blinding wind to pay their respects to Susan B. Anthony. Mm -hmm. And the honorary pallbearers mm -hmm. are women who've graduated from the University of Rochester. Today on the Janice Adams Show, celebrating the life and legacy of Susan B. Anthony at her historic home in Rochester, New York, with our guests, Deborah L. Hughes, President and CEO of the Susan B. Anthony Museum and Home, Victoria Brustowitz, Director of Marketing and Communications, and Linda Lapata, Director of Interpretation and Visitor Services. 
Our thanks to them and to you for joining us today. For more about today's show, visit my website, janusadams.com. That's J-A-N-U-S-A-D-A-M-S.com. From the studios of WJFF Radio Catskill post-production, Jason Dole. This show is a production of Janus Adams, LLC, all rights reserved. Trying to make it real compared to what...